This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Chapter 10 of Genesis features what many call the Table of Nations. The Table of Nations lays out biblical geography, and cultural dispersion across the scriptural author's known world. There's a lot packed away in this chapter thanks to the brilliance of the scriptural Hebrew language and the intelligence of the authors. We will put in the work to introduce these names in detail because when we push our effort this way, we will have a much better idea when the names of these nations come up again later in scripture. These seemingly alien words play an important role in the total story being told, And if we sit back and gloss over them because it's too hard to understand them, then they will be extremely hard to keep track of as we navigate the story of the Old Testament. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rifat, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Now, I know this is probably everybody's favorite content, so grab some seat. Grab your popcorn and let's learn some Hebrew through the devices of these genealogies. Now, in all seriousness, we must remember that names in the Bible are functional, so much more so than we can immediately understand because we hardly have this in our culture anymore. Someone isn't named Hope because they bring others hope. They're named Hope because it's a cute name. This isn't a bad thing. It's just not how the scriptural authors write. Just like how authors Bob Kane and Bill Finger named their superhero Batman, not just because it sounds cool, but because Batman is like a bat in the way he acts in the shadows of Gotham City. That's why in the new Batman film, kudos to that film by the way, he never refers to himself as Batman. It's a functional name given to him by the people of Gotham, not his Facebook profile that he made himself. Now, this is by no means a perfect example of how the authors of Scripture use functional names, but it's the simplest modern example I can think of. All that said, 
many of the meanings of the words are sort of lost because they are really just there to set up the geography of the world of the scriptural story. All of Noah and his son's descendants are tribes that make up the stage of the biblical story. For the names of these descendants, the author seemed to be co-opting some names of ancient people groups in lands that would have been contemporaneous with them, leaving us without clear lexical functional meaning. However, some names seem particularly chosen to communicate a quality describing those people, while others, as I said, seem to be simply referencing those ancient people groups. Uh, Blaze will elaborate on this more shortly, but for now I'll try to force myself to only comment extensively on those names that have apparent thematic meaning or importance, at least the obvious ones. Regardless, this is a part of the scriptural story, and just because it's boring or more difficult does not mean we should just gloss over it. We need to put in the work to help our understanding, even if we make a couple mistakes along the way. So let's get into it. The sons of Japheth are listed as such. We have Gomer, which comes from the word meaning to come to an end or to complete. Magog, which comes from the root Gog. Neither of these words have an obvious meaning in Hebrew, but Gog and Magog appear later in Scripture. Um, Gog is a character in Ezekiel from the land of Magog who is prophesied to be called upon by God to come down from the north and conquer Israel. Other connections to the word allude to some idea of these two being related, um, but separate demonic personalities or entities that are used by God for destruction. This is present in Islamic tradition as well. In John's revelation, Gog and Magog are said to return with Satan in the great struggle at the end of time. While there is not a clear answer to what the word actually means in the scriptures, it's clear that the traditions of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity consider Gog and Magog to be demonic beings or some sort of personalities used by God for destruction. Modern scholars have found connections to a king, Gygus, who was a king in the 7th century BCE in what is now eastern Turkey uh, in the city of Lydia. Another possible connection is to the Akkadian Gog, Gaga, and the Akkadian word, which means the land of Gygus. So I don't want to make any concrete argument that this is definitely that king or that Akkadian idea, um, but I do want to provide some options to understand where this name might be coming from, since it does stand out from the others when looked into, and it seems to play an important role in tradition, while perhaps not playing a super important role in the story of Scripture. Yeah, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this specific name, uh, but it does come up a lot, so I think it deserves a mention to um, another potential candidate for the identity of Gog, which is Alexander the Great, um, which is somewhat of a common idea, uh, especially in, in ancient times, it was pretty common. Um, in Arabic-speaking environments as well, uh, there's definitely considered to be a connection between Alexander the Great and Gog and Magog. Um, anyways, this is all very speculative, but it, it certainly bears a mention, especially when we think about his his uh, history with the uh, with the bringing of Hellenism into the Semitic uh, quote unquote barbarian world as they would have viewed it. Um, but regardless, like I said, it's all speculative, but we'll definitely revisit this theme as we continue. Um, I just think that it could plant some interesting seeds for those hearing this for the first time. The next of the sons of Japheth is Madai, which is possibly connected to the verb Madad, which means to measure. And it is likewise the name of the nation of Mendia, which appears later in scripture. 
Next is Javan, which is more properly pronounced Yavan, which is important so that you can hear its connection to the word Yona, which is the English dove. This Yavan, or Javan, is commonly believed to be the ancestral people of Greece. Javan is the name for Greece, or Greeks, in general. In Hebrew, and it is found in the book of Daniel referring to the king of Greece, which is commonly interpreted, again, to be Alexander the Great. Perhaps this connection to the Greeks with the dove can be understood by the behavior of Noah's dove. Like Noah's dove and God's prophet dove Jonah, the Greeks venture out and do not come back. But they are meant to. They're representing the caricature of the Gentiles. They are the Gentiles of the New Testament. So they go out and they do not come back, but they're meant to, and God works for their return. I know I'm flaunting allegory, but the authors chose these words, so the themes, the ideas, must be connected, at least to some degree. And you know, maybe I'm wrong, but let's just keep going through Scripture and hear what it says. Also in the Greek language, if you think about the word Ionia and the Ionians, it's the similar concept. Yeah. The next son of Japheth is Tubal, which probably comes from the word Yabal, which is the idea of bearing along or leading, and is the name of a nation that many scholars connect to the ancient tribe Tabal, which belonged in Asia Minor. Nearby, this nation is Meshech, which is naturally the next of Japheth's son, and the last son is Tyrus. It then lists the sons of Gomer, which is the verb to come to an end, and these are Ashkenaz, Rifath, and Togarmah, All three of these are just names of kingdoms, regions, or people groups. Next are the sons of Yavan, the biblical Greeks, the doves. Yavan has Elisha, which is often associated with the people from the island of Cyprus, the coasts in northeastern Turkey, or the coasts of Greece. And yes, Elisha or Elisha is in some traditions believed to be an ancestor of the prophet, but there's nothing clearly connecting them here. Next is Tarshish, which is a Mediterranean port. Kitim, which is often associated with Cyprus as well. And Dodanim, which is an area of Greece. Notice in verse 5 that the Bible calls them the coastland peoples who all had their own language and clan and nation. So it is definitely communicating this geographical identifier with the Greeks. And like Blaise said earlier with the Ionians, uh, and the connection to the Hebrew word yonah, these are probably, and many scholars think this too, these are definitely related words across the two languages and might even be borrowed um, by the scriptural authors for this purpose. So moving on to Ham's descendants, the text says, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteka, the sons of Rama. Sheba and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, 
Ananim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. So these next sets of names are mostly Hebrew transliterations of prominent Afro-Asiatic kingdoms and, and city-states. So the words don't originally derive from Hebrew. That being said, it's a lot less clear in these scenarios what, if any, functional meanings they hold other than to paint a clear picture of the various people groups surrounding the scriptural authors. One thing is for sure, though, that the Hamitic and Shemitic lines are both intertwined and functionally two sides of the same coin. We'll get more into this as we continue, but it's good to keep that at the back of our mind. First of all, it's clear just from a linguistic standpoint that all of these cultures in these two lineages are related by their classification in the Afro-Asiatic family of languages. In fact, an older descriptor for these languages was Hemido-Semitic, so that alone tells you everything you need to know. So therefore, it is important to understand the distinction of the Hamites and the Shemites, not along the lines of race and bloodline, but through the lens of functionality. And you can see how this plays out, that in the Hamitic sphere, you have places like Egypt and Babylon, and in the Shemitic sphere, you have places and names that are marked by nomadic shepherdism. So we begin with Cush, which is a place that had already been mentioned as being a land that contained one of the four rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. Cush being a prominent kingdom in ancient Sudan is the country in which the Nile flows so that it's most likely its reason for being specifically mentioned in Genesis 2. But that's another point as well, that these ancient Afro-Asiatic civilizations are the main focus of this section. The point the authors are getting across is that these are extremely large and imposing empires meant to intimidate. This has been lost on us Westerners a bit because while we know about Egypt and Babylon, most of us were never educated about the kingdom of Cush or Aksum or Punt, even though these were mighty civilizations of their own time and certainly not to be toyed with. They were incredibly menacing, so we have to be aware of this and retrain our brains to see the scriptures as the authors did. This also fits well with the anti-human kingdom theme that the Bible has been and will continue beating over our heads with. Next, we have the character Egypt, which in some English translations of the Bible appears as Mitzrayim. This is an untranslated transliteration of the original Hebrew. This is a really fascinating word because it is entirely a name that was given to Egypt by its subjects and was never a name it used for itself. The ancient Egyptians called their country Kemet. The name Egypt comes from the Greek word Aiptos, which is itself a transliteration of Hat Kapta, home of the soul of Ka in, in the language. This is also the foundation of the word Kopt, which is used today mostly for the Coptic Orthodox Christians in Egypt and their liturgical language, Coptic, which is the only surviving strand of the ancient Egyptian language, having been supplanted in modern times by Arabic. So what's going on with the Hebrew word Mitzrayim? Well, it is ultimately the plural form of Metzur, which means to besiege. It also has the connotation of a fortress. Matsur comes from the root Tzur, which means to combine, 
find or besiege. So there you go, folks. It is, as Exodus 13.3 says, a house of slavery or bondage. That is its function in the story. The plural could either refer to the division of the country into Upper and Lower Egypt, but being aware of Hebrew functionally, I'd venture to guess that this is an example of the Hebrew honorific plural. It's the paragon of slavery in its utmost manifestation. The next name on the list is Put, which likely corresponds to the kingdom of Punt, which was on the coast of the Horn of Africa. Punt was a major exporter in the ancient world of gold and other building materials used to construct temples and idols around the Mediterranean. Keep in mind also that the Horn of Africa was also a major trading hub for incense and other materials used in temple liturgies. Given scripture's anti-temple bent, it's no surprise why the nature of Hamites are described through these empires. And then finally we get Canaan, which, as we've already explained, means subjugated. Having already heard about Canaan informs us of his importance. And his curse is simple. If the Israelites exist as subjugators in their lofty city-states, God will send foreigners to subjugate them, which, as anyone familiar with the saga of Israel will know, does indeed happen. Next, we leave Africa and across the Red Sea to the Arabian Peninsula. The sons of Cush begin with Saba, which are likely the Sabaeans mentioned in the Quran. They were southern Arabians around modern-day Yemen. The next is Havilah, which we've already discussed in our episode around Genesis 2. Havilah, of course, is where we heard that there is gold in the land, which was good, and that there was also Bedellium and Onyx, the makings of a temple. And it makes sense with these being trading hubs. The world at large get their quote-unquote bad supplies here. This will be flipped on its head where it'll be God who will be reached from the desert. Next you have Septa and Septeca. You also have a character named Rama who has two sons, Sheba and Didan. Sheba is important because it is from him that the queen of Sheba will hear of Solomon's wisdom and travel to his palace to meet him. While there, she gave him more spices than he knew what to do with. Literally, in the book of Chronicles, it says, Never again came such an abundance of spices since the visitation of Solomon by the Queen of Sheba. Again, it is very clearly giving us an image of the Hamitic peoples as not just mighty in political power, but simply mighty in influence as traitors. Finally, towards the end of the Hamitic saga, we get a mention of the character Nimrod, now, the precise etymology of Nimrod is a bit mysterious, but as far as Hebrew goes, it seems to be related to the word for leopard, which is nemer. This word appears a few other times in scripture. One of the most interesting is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 6. Here it reads, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And a little child should lead them. This is from the famous Stump of Jesse passage. With the leopard being a hunting animal, it only makes sense that Nimrod is a hunter. And not only a hunter, but a mighty hunter. The word for mighty in Hebrew is gibor, which also has the connotation of a warrior or hero. The name Gabriel literally means my hero is God. Of course, you could supply warrior or mighty one to that, but each of those technically get the point across. We read next that the heads, or reshit, of Nimrod's kingdom 
were Babel, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalneh. Now, what is interesting here is that not only are these empires of Semitic stock, but these are the empires from which all Semitic culture stems from. And as far as the Bible is concerned, they're not even Semitic. Just as this is the foundation of Nimrod's domain, this is also the foundation of the home of the scriptural authors, their personal heritage and world. Notice still that we are talking about the Hamites and not the sons of Shem, the biblical Semites. The emphasis placed here cannot be overlooked. This is foundational to understanding the author's own sense of self. Scripture is not a critique of other cultures only, but of their own. It's a self-critique, which is likely why the founding father of these cities and of the scriptural authors is not only mentioned, but given a name and an occupation. And it even says that he was to the Lord's face, or Lipne Yahweh. Now, there's a lot of directions we could take this, so I'm not going to speculate on what exactly this means, but it is interesting nonetheless when we think of Nimrod as being the patriarch, perhaps, of the scriptural authors, a household, a family that they are called out of, just like the character Abram, to the land the Lord will show them. Just something to think about. Anyways, very briefly, Babel means the gate of God, which has obvious connections to the temple complex. Uh, it's also related to the Hebrew word uh, for confusion. So we uh, will get to that later with the Tower of Babel, of course, and the confusing of the languages. This is also the same name as Babylon. Um, in Hebrew, both words are the same, but in English, it's different because English is silly. Um, the word Babylon comes from the Akkadian Babylon, meaning the gate of the gods. Uruk is originally an Akkadian word, but it is related to the Hebrew word for city, which is ir. Remember that Abram comes from Ir of the Chaldees. It kind of reminds me in Arabic, the word for city is Al-Medina, and one of the holiest cities in Arabia is Medina, literally a city called the city. Uruk is also where the name Iraq comes from, the modern country from which this section is, is set. Same name, different spelling in English. Akkad is famous for being the first major Semitic city-state. Its famous founder, Sargon of Akkad, is very much a Nimrod-like character, and the myth around his birth is very similar to that of Moses' own story. So we don't need to get into that, but obviously the scriptural authors were aware of him. Kalne is a bit of a mysterious one, as it doesn't correspond to a particular city in Mesopotamia and may simply be referring to a totality of the cities as kol is the word for all in Hebrew. This is just speculation though. And finally we get to the land of Shinar, which is likely re referring to Sumer, the original non-Semitic name for the region before the Semitic Akkadians conquered the land. Finally we finish with the foundation of the Assyrians, the Ninevites, and Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, which are all prominent Assyrian cities. Again, we already have the major enemies of Israel in the Old Testament, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Assyrians, and the scriptural characters are all connected to each of these tyrannical cities. 
I'll briefly touch on the sons of Egypt, which are Ludim, Anamim, Lehebim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, and Kaftorim. The really interesting ones are Ludim and Kasluhim, which, while being Hamites in the scriptural narrative, are actually stand-ins for Greek peoples. The first is Ludim, which is related to uh, the Lydians, and Kasluhim are said to be the peoples from which the Philistines came, who are also said to be Greek in origin. The Philistines are, of course, a major foe against the Hebrews, and their relation to Egypt is possibly a reference to Alexander the Great City in Egypt, that being none other than Alexandria. All very fascinating. Which brings me to my last point before I bring it back to Rowdy and stop hogging the mic. So you've probably noticed that the scriptural notions of Semites are obviously different than modern anthropological ones. When we talk about Semitic languages and peoples in a modern sense, while we do name this label after Shem, it is relating to similarities in language and genetics more than anything else. That is why scriptural Hamites can also be Semitic, and why, as we see later, the scriptural Semites can be Indo-European. In scripture, this has nothing to do with language or genetics, but everything to do with function. The Semites are those who spread the name. It's a very different classification. Even before the scriptures in the ancient Near East, various stocks of people were considered related whether they had similar languages, customs, religions, or not. If they lived on the same earth, that is the surrounding land, they were brethren with the land as the mother. We, of course, have already seen this cultural thread manifest in the creation of man from the ground. There is no concept of racial division or anything like that, so keep that in mind. Yeah, the divisions that we have in our modern day are very much products of the Enlightenment period and, and Western individualism and uh, the reemergence of Greek philosophy and all these ideas that sort of coagulate into our current reality. Yeah, because the, the Greeks pretty much classified all people as Greeks or barbarians. And to them, the scriptural authors were barbarians, even though they're producing this extremely intelligent literature. And, and they came from the Akkadians who founded civilization long before the Greeks were ever on the map. Yeah. The Greeks were the barbarians then, you know, so that's the real irony. Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in this week. We are going to cut the chapter in half, unfortunately, um, this week, because since there is so much to get through, we were afraid of overwhelming um, all of you. And uh, you might be able to hear it by the end of the next episode, which was done in the same recording, that we overwhelmed ourselves a little bit um, with all the information that we were packing into uh, the script. So join us again next week as we finish out chapter 10 and conclude what we understand chapter 10 to be doing in its introduction and establishment of biblical geography and the introduction to the major players and the minor players of the game that is the Old Testament story. So just one last thank you from Blaze and myself to all you dear listeners. We hope you are having a productive Lenten season if you were partaking in the fast and that you are all humble and quick to repentance. Christ is in our midst. And he shall be like the tree which is planted by the stream.